You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here. I, I was out uh, last two Sundays. I was actually uh, in Orlando officiating my brother's wedding. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. And it's a cool thing to, um, I've officiated a lot of weddings, but officiating my brother's wedding was really good. And I was very excited to, in the part where the message part of the wedding, to really tell my brother's wife who it is that she's really marrying. <laughs> and uh, I was able to share some things that I've needed to share for a long time. And uh, I don't know how they felt, but I felt fantastic after it was over. So, <laughs> so anyway, all right, as we get started, uh, now... Some of us have known each other for a while, and others of us for the last 40 seconds or so. So it's enough time to ask a very probing question. But if I can see by a show of hands, anybody have a food that is such a temptation, you just, you can't say no to it, and you can't even have it in your house. Anybody have a food of that nature? Others of you are like, yeah, I don't even eat. You know, okay, very good. And, um, but I have, I have several foods, that's why I look the way I do, uh, that are like that, that are like basically kryptonite to me. And that's why most of my life consists of just, you know, protein and a salad because I can't be trusted around this stuff. And, you know, for some people, it's things like ice cream. And honestly, I could care less about ice cream. I could go a year without eating ice cream and not even realize that I, that I did it. But the thing that I cannot live without, you know, it's funny, in the first service, there was this murmur in the, in the whole congregation. When I'm like, you know, there's this food that I have. And everybody's like, yeah, Oreos. And, uh, and I was like... Well, yeah, it's Oreos. It's actually double-stuff Oreos. Because I believe that double-stuff, uh, I've written, the, the Oreo people just won't write me back, but um, I believe that double-stuff Oreos should be the smallest. Then the mega-stuff should be the medium, should be what double-stuff is, and then they have this new thing called the most stuff. When you buy the package, there's only like seven cookies in there. That's how much cream they're putting in there. That should be the big size, and then... The, the regular size Oreos that we have, those just need to be retired because we've learned a better way to live. So that's kind of my feeling about it. And, uh, but I can't, have, I can't have Oreos in my house because I do not know, uh, I don't know how to say no. I really don't. And, um, and I figured out that that was a problem like 20 years ago. And so the reason I can't have Oreos in the house because of something that happened, I was preaching at a church in Central Florida. It was the second time I had taught there. And the first time I taught there, I made some joke, kind of offhanded joke about Oreos. And uh, when I went up to teach, they had two packages of double stuffed Oreos waiting for me. And uh, it was the best honorarium I've ever gotten. And, uh, and so anyway, my, my wife used to do this thing where she would take this tub, like a storage bin, and she would line the bottom and the top with bread, and then put the Oreos in the middle, close the bin, and then leave it overnight. And then in the morning, the bread would be hard and the Oreos would be soft. They were like cakesters, if you remember cakesters. Uh, before that was a thing, even though cakesters are gone because we reside in a dystopian society where nothing beautiful can live. So anyway, um, now, so she does that with the Oreos one, uh, that was Sunday night, so Monday morning, she's like, okay, the Oreos are ready, and, and then she gives me this warning, and she says, Bob, you have to pace yourself. And I'm like, don't, of course, don't even worry about it. Well, about two hours later, she sees this container being depleted at an alarming rate. And she says, Bob, you have to slow down. 
And I said, I'm like, Carrie, relax. This wasn't even me. The people have been coming in and out of this house all day. She's like, it's just us. What are you talking about? Anyway, so about an hour later, I walk by the kitchen. And uh, I am smuggling as many Oreos as I can without being caught. So I'm just trying to, like, figure out, you know, what is the world record for how many Oreos can you shove in your mouth? That's, that was basically what I was doing. And then I just, because I wanted to be totally hands-free. So if my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you know, I'm just kind of, and then, so I'm, I'm stuffing my face with these Oreos, and then, I, I, well, have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt like you were being watched? Well, I was being watched, and my wife was standing behind me, and I turn around, and I'm like, <laughs> like all these particles start going, and, and she gives me this look, like, I married you. I had so many other options. Men better looking than you. And here we are. I married this moron. And, and I was guilty. And, and you know, but here's the, thing about, here's the thing about temptation that a lot of times we don't, we don't realize. Is that, you know, really, it's not a sin to be tempted. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted. And we're going to drill down on that uh, for a little bit in our time together. The sin, of course, is in giving in to the temptation. Because it's only those uh, who have resisted temptation that know the power of temptation. And if uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, if you've been around Calvary for a while, you know, I've I've quoted from this book and recommended it, I don't know, a thousand times. But uh, Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, only those who... who, uh, Try to resist temptation, know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And see, that's what happens. You know, when 90 days ago, when a new year started, that, that was the topic that was on our minds. And that is uh, because we've all given into temptation and then we were having this brand new year and we were saying to ourselves, we want to master it. We want to master the things that have mastered us because we understand that everything that we want, the life that we want is on the other side of mastering temptation. And, and we, we understand that every goal that we have, every dream we want to accomplish has at some level victory over temptation built into it. And so if you want to change the way you spend money, then you've got to resist a temptation called the mall. Some of you need to delete the Amazon app from your phone. When I said that at 10 o'clock, you know what I heard? <gasps> like people gasped. Like, as I was like, how could I? I have to see the Amazon guy twice a day. And, uh, and, 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 you know, if you want to lose weight, you got to say goodbye to your love affair with carbs, right? And, and if you want to grow spiritually, you've got to resist the temptation that happens when we get distracted and we take things that don't matter as much and we make them as higher priorities. But listen, whether it's achieving a goal or overcoming temptation, it requires the same skill. And that is saying no to what we want now for the thing that we really want later. And the question that we need to ask is, why does Matthew in his gospel talk about Jesus being tempted before he talks about just about anything else in Jesus's ministry? Now, the thing that we have to remember and, uh, is that Matthew's goal in his gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And everything he writes is cluing us in that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And that includes not being led astray by temptations that would have derailed him. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus can be trusted because he didn't give in to the temptation and that he can sympathize with those who are tempted as well. 
In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And here's the real key. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So we started this series a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling The Story, and we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And we call it The Story because I firmly believe that if you will learn his story, that it will change yours. Because everyone wants to live a better story. We want today to be better than yesterday, and we want our future to be better for ourselves and for those that we love. And Matthew is going to show us how that's possible through the life of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned before, the goal of Matthew's gospel is to prove that to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. And that means giving special emphasis to fulfilled prophecy and the miracles of Jesus, especially the words of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount that we'll begin looking at next week and the private discourse that he gives to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25. And this chapter is no different. Jesus has just been baptized, as we saw in our last message, and now he's going to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And before we get started, I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about not just Jesus being tempted, but I want to talk about the tempter for uh, a moment. And, and the devil comes to tempt Jesus. Now, the question that I want to pose is, is it reasonable in 2022 as modern people in a scientific world to believe in a real devil? I believe it is. And I believe in a real devil for several reasons. At its most basic level, I believe in a real devil because Jesus believed in a real devil, and I just tend to go along with it at whatever Jesus has to say. That's just my personal rule. But the second thing is, is that there are things that happen in this world that go beyond bad choices or bad ideology. And if there's no devil, then a guy like Hitler just made a bad choice then something like human trafficking is just someone who's got a bad idea uh, about properly valuing human life. But listen, we watch the news right now. When you go home, turn on the news. People are talking about the possibility of World War III. And is it just that Vladimir Putin just woke up and just had this weird idea, just made a bad choice? Now, listen, I've been asked this a bunch, and I'll just talk about this real quick. Uh, I've been asked several times if I feel like the invasion of Ukraine has anything to do with Bible prophecy, and it does not have anything to do with Bible prophecy directly. I think it has something to teach us indirectly about Bible prophecy. There is a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, about Russia invading Israel, and people for years have said that that was impossible, that that would never happen, the U.S. would never allow that uh, for Russia to just start taking land and, and whatnot, and this invasion of Ukraine is showing what Russia believes, that the West won't do anything. In fact, in part of Ezekiel 38, it tells us that the West, or what are called the young lions, that is those who have come out of Great Britain, um, that there are those who will simply talk about why Russia is doing this, and that is to take plunder. But they won't do anything. All they will do is talk, and this is the thing that we're seeing. But make no mistake, if you don't believe that there is a real devil, then Putin's just making a bad, you know, bad choice. And, and my friends, I just believe that to be naive. If we believe that there is a God who is personal and who loves us, is it really so far-fetched to believe that there is another being who is not out for our good? According to the Bible, Satan was once an angel of God. 
He became filled with pride, and as a result, he was kicked out of heaven, and through this rebellion, a third of the angels went with him, and he's been wreaking havoc on planet Earth ever since. But it's also important for us to understand that the devil is not God's equal. The devil is a created being, and at the appointed time, God is going to give him what he's got coming to him at some point in the future. But what we tend to do, and this is the key, some of us tend to overestimate who the devil is, or some of us tend to underestimate him and make him to be no factor whatsoever. And those who are biblically wise properly estimate who he is and what he can do. And so we're going to see this temptation happen. If you're with me uh, in Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. If you have your notes, or you can check it out on the screen. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, or literally, since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. First thing, we're going to talk about four things today when it comes to temptation. Number one is this, is that I am tempted when I doubt God's love. We need to understand that the temptation is not really about bread, even though some of us, let's be honest, we need to lay off the bread a little bit. Uh, The temptation isn't about eating when you're hungry. The temptation was about Jesus showing off his power. When Jesus became a man, he set aside the independent use of his power. That means he would wait on his father to lead and direct him to do a miracle or heal someone. And now there's no food. And Satan is saying, you've been trusting God here and there's no food. Why don't you take matters into your own hands? Now, the thing we have to understand about temptation is that Jesus was tempted. I'll get that in just a second. I have a pizza coming in and uh, they're letting me know when they're on their way. And so... But this wasn't just Satan posing questions. This was him trying to entice Jesus in some way. And it's not a temptation unless it's tempting. Now, and and here's what I mean by that. If if you were to walk up to me after the service and present me with a box of raisinets and be like, ooh, I know you want these. Ooh, so delicious. You know, no, because raisinets are gross. You know why? Because raisins are gross. I like raisins in their original form when they were grapes. And every time I see someone eating a raisin, I just think you wanted a grape and you missed your opportunity and now you're stuck with this. And so anyway, but it's not a temptation to me. Now you put a bag of Reese's Pieces uh, in, in, in front of me and that will evaporate because I don't even play uh, when it comes to that. Why? Because it's a temptation. And once again, The things that are, and it's not that we all struggle with the same temptations, it's that all of us are tempted, and these temptations were temptations. But I I want you to imagine having all the power in the universe, but you've decided not to use it. Plus, you haven't eaten for 40 days, and with the snap of a finger, you could make some bread. By the way, it doesn't even have to be first century bread. He could have snapped his finger. This guy's right around the corner, and uh, sorry, he just really wants me to make sure I get that pizza. And... uh, (laughs) There's a silence function. You guys maybe haven't heard about it, but there is. It's like a little silent thing. So anyway, um, so, or you can turn your phone off. (laughs) Friends will think you're dead. And so, but you got to turn, anyway. So, but what happens is, is that after 40 days, I mean, he could just snap his finger and turn it into bread. And it doesn't even have to be first century bread. He could have turned it into that, that wheat bread that they, they give out at Cheesecake Factory. 
He could have been that brave, which they never bring enough of. And don't even get me started. I have sent that out. And, uh, but anyway, and that's tempting, just like I'm tempted to smash that phone right now. And so, and so anyway, but I'm not because I'm a Christian, but I will think about smashing the phone and that will bring me some joy. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> Woo, wow, these things, 1130 is always a, an interesting journey together, isn't it though? <laughs> so, but listen, the temptation is, is realizing that God hasn't forgotten you. That's why the response of Jesus is so powerful in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's, it's, it's this powerful passage where Moses it reminds the people of Israel that when they are about to go into the promised land, that God has not forgotten them. In fact, you'll see it up on the screen in uh, chapter 8. He says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you uh, all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. There's, there is something fascinating here that's important for us to know, that God allowed the people of Israel to experience the need of hunger before he met the need with something that they had never seen. And what the, the, the way he met the need was with manna. Now, if you're not aware, uh, manna would just it's a Hebrew word that means what is it? It would just appear on the ground. It was this you know, white substance that would show up every morning and the people, children of Israel, when they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land, uh, that's what they would eat. And they would collect it and cook it up and uh, they would make you know, all kinds of things, you know, manna soup and manna bread and manna salad, manna cotti. They were making all kinds of things. And, uh, and, that's why, and that's why Moses says that the whole point of this exercise is to teach you that you don't live on bread alone, but on the words of God. You survive on bread, but you thrive in life when you realize that God has a plan for your life, even in the simplest things like the bread that you eat. And that's why Jesus quotes the verse, and Satan knows that he's not going to win with this angle. So he's got to try something else. But listen, we are tempted and tested with this one all the time. And, and, and that is, hey, God, uh, you, we, God allows us to see a need that we have in our lives. And then the question becomes, are we going to try to meet this need in our own strength, uh, in our own resources, or are we going to allow God to do something? And I'm telling you that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're single and you're here and, and, and you're like, man, I haven't gone on a date in a while, and, and, and then somebody asks you out and they're not a Christian, and, and you're thinking, you know, he's cute, but he's not a Christian. But the thing is, is that if he's cute and he's not a Christian, he can always become a Christian, and that works, and then he would be a cute Christian. But if he's a Christian and not cute, then he's doomed. And so, and so at least with you, and uh, maybe not... Anyway, so the point, but the point is this, and, and, and that's the challenge. And so like the children of Israel, listen, they had to recognize uh, that they had a need before God met it. And I think that there's a key for us to understand that sometimes God allows you to see a desire that is in you, that the desire to be with someone is good. But the way we go about meeting the need is key. And that is the difference between God ultimately bringing the right person at the right time and making us the right person for that right time and us trying to do something that will ultimately fail and cause us misery. Well, he goes on in verse 5. Satan knows that angle's not going to work. So in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, 
and in their hands, lest you, uh, he, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And if you pause there and, uh, and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you is I'm tempted when I overstep God's provision. Now, why is this such a tough temptation? A uh, couple of reasons, literally. Uh, first is, is that Satan is quoting the Bible. And, and he's a quote, it's, it's a quotation of Psalm 91, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah. Satan is saying, why don't you jump? And since you're, you're the Messiah, the angels are going to catch you, and you'll actually fulfill that verse. And that's a good thing, right? Actually, no. This psalm is about trusting God, staying under the wing of God's protection, not doing something stupid, and then asking God to rescue you. And the challenge is, listen, this is the temptation we have. When we proverbially jump, when we spend more money than we know we can pay, when we put ourselves in bad situations, when we do something wrong and then pray that we don't experience the consequences of our actions, and so we do these things and we say, well, I'm praying, that, I'm trusting that God's going to help me, and uh, we don't realize this, but we're putting ourselves in the position of God and somehow trying to make God our servant. And my friends, that's not the way this relationship works. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do, to overstep in God's provision so it seems like what God has done isn't enough and then trying somehow to force uh, the Father to do more. This is the difference between faith and presumption. Faith is us stepping out because God is leading us. Presumption is jumping and saying to God, well, you better catch me or you're gonna look bad. Now, let me tell you something that's important for us to understand. God doesn't have a problem looking bad in your eyes when we presume on him to do something that he's not into. And if you're a parent, you know this, that sometimes your kids will do things, and especially you know, in a store or a public place. And I, I did this uh, when I was about five years old. I was in a record store with my mom, my grandmother, and my cousin. And we went to, and by the way, if you don't know what a record store is, uh, we can't be friends. And so anyway, so I was in this record store, records, okay? And so, uh, I was five, and there was this Donald Duck record that I wanted. And my mom said no because we're Cuban, and so the answer for everything is no. And sucking the joy out of everything is our superpower, apparently. And so, anyway, but I, I, really, wanted this, uh, I really wanted this Donald Duck record, which, by the way, I don't even understand why. Uh, I'm almost 50 years old. I can't understand a word that dude says. And so I can't even understand him singing a song. So, but I, for whatever, I freaked out. And I started to cry, and I started screaming, and I threw myself on the floor. I mean, this was like an Oscar-worthy presentation. And, uh, and, and listen, now typically, uh, my mom would have just beat me within an inch of my life. And uh, because, you know, people ask me, they'll say, oh, you know, when you were young, did your mom do timeout? No, my mom didn't do timeout. She did a thing called knockout, which is a little different. <laughs> and so anyway... And so, but my mom had like this weird, this weird moment of wisdom. It was like, it was, anyway, it was so strange. And, uh, and so she just stood there. I was like, screaming and crying. And she says, hey, when you're done, you can meet us in the car because we're leaving. And she walked out. My grandmother walked out. My cousin walked out. And I was like, they ain't leaving. I just kept screaming and all that. And then, um, because if you remember in record stores, there'd be these bins, and then underneath, they were open. So I'm on the floor, and I can see from under the bins, I can see my mom's car. And then, and I'm still kind of flailing and whatever, and then I see the white lights appear of the reverse lights. And I was like, oh, snap, this woman's leaving. 
And I just jumped up. I'm like, hey, I'm all better now. And I just, I got out there because I didn't know what was going to happen if she, like, the fit was over. And listen, this, I think, is sometimes what's happening is that sometimes we just, will jump and be like, oh, God, you don't want to look bad. I'm telling people to trust you, so I'm going to do it. And it's like, yeah, just, whenever you're ready, we're, we'll be out in the car. And, uh, and this is the thing. This is part of the lesson of Psalm 91. Stay close to God because we can trust him. Psalm 91 opens, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. The psalm begins with trusting God and everything that follows is a result of trusting God, not presuming on his power to bail us out. And this is why Jesus' response is so powerful when he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The full verse says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Now, this has a deeper meaning than uh, because of what Moses is referring to, and it's exactly the reason why Jesus quotes it. It's a moment in Israel's history where they fell for this trick that Satan was trying to tempt Jesus into. The people were thirsty. They were complaining to Moses. God does the miraculous, makes water come from a rock, and uh, but the people had this pattern of complaining and that never left, and it hindered their future because they never dealt with it. And Moses is telling the people, you cannot let this thing from your past become part of your future. What wise people do is they see the patterns of temptation in their lives. And sometimes, listen, we, we've got to make this decision that we are going to examine our past, not for the purpose of beating ourselves up, but for the purpose of seeing the pattern. We look for the people, the decisions, and the situations in our lives that are calling us, causing us to fall into temptation and, 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 and that we regret so much later. And listen, what happens is, is that when you do that, you make those decisions, you look and you kind of just examine your life and say, where am I putting myself in a situation where I'm, I'm, I'm falling into temptation? Well, then it's just a matter of exercising some wisdom making some wiser choices that don't put us in those situations and put us on a new path. Now listen, you and I cannot plan for every temptation that comes into our lives, but we don't have to keep putting ourselves in a bad situation that causes us to continually fall. Now, he goes on, that doesn't work. So in verse eight, again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and ministered to him. And if you pause there and give me your attention, third thing I want to tell you is that I'm tempted when I question God's plan. Now, let me, uh, I got to set this up by telling you this kind of silly story, but it'll make sense when I tell it. So I used to have a 1988 Chevy Cavalier. I, I, drew, I drove it all through college and then into my, uh, the early years of my marriage. And it was a good car. Later on, it started having problems. Uh, one of the challenges the car had is that it wouldn't start unless you laid hands on the car and prayed. And I'm not even kidding. I remember I would jump out. I'd be running late. And uh, I, was, I was not a morning person back then. And so I would jump in the car and just nothing. Get out of the car. Lord, please, you know I'm running late. I need you to start this car. Anyway, I get back in the car. My prayer life was never better uh, than that. And, and it didn't matter what, how much of a rush I was, where I was, whether it was raining or sunny. 
I had to lay hands on the car and pray for the car for it to start. Later on, the car got infested with cockroaches. It's really, an that's another story. But I used to call it the Cockroach Training Center because back when I used to teach the college before starting Calvary, I would, I would show up um, at, at, in the evening after teaching. I'd walk up to the car and I called it the Training Center because I would see roaches doing laps on the steering wheel. So anyway, good times, good times. So anyway, one day my wife and I are driving in the car and she opens the glove box. And she, no, it's not that. But I like where your head's at. Whoever had the O, I, I like where your head's at. That, that would have been a good part of the story. It's just not. Uh, but that would have been something. Anyway, if we ever make a movie about this, that's what's going to happen. Anyway, so uh, my wife opens the glove box, and she's looking for something, and she pulls out the title to my car. And, and she says, uh, what's this? I'm like, oh, here, that's the title. Now, this car may not uh, start without prayer, and there may be a few other passengers on this car that we don't know about, um, but it's ours. And she says, well, not for long. And I said, why say that? She says, because if someone breaks into this car and takes the title, it now belongs to them. And, and I don't know if you ever had a moment in life where you say, I probably should have known that little piece of information. That was like one of these moments that I, that I had. And, and now I, I want you to understand, right? Whoever has the title is the owner. And that's an important thing for us to, for us to know. Because why is this a temptation for Satan to say, hey, all the kingdoms of the world I will give to you? Why is that a temptation? And so uh, the way that it's not going to make sense until I give you some of the theological underpinnings. So let's start at the beginning. God creates man and woman. And uh, he gives them charge uh, of the earth. Now, he, he told them to tend and care for the garden. The title deed was theirs, so to speak. But Genesis tells us that mankind gives up the title deed. They give up stewardship uh, of the earth to Satan all over a piece of fruit, right? The ultimate lemon deal. Is, is uh, really nothing, huh? Yeah. You know, fruit jokes don't work here. Only junk food lands well. If this church is a little closer to uh, the disciple of Jesus, John, he writes this in 1 John 5. Now we know that we are children of God, that the whole world is under the control of the wicked one. That's why the, the world that you and I live in is ruled by the devil. That's why there's pain, death, disease, and suffering. It's his world to control for now. Jesus shows up, and Satan is very aware of what Jesus' goal is. He wants to redeem the earth, to take back the title deed. How? In ancient Israel, when land was sold or lost by a family member, a, what was called a kinsman redeemer, in Hebrew it was called a goel, could be, the, the closest one would be one who, would, who could buy back the land for the family, retake the title deed and ownership of the land, but there was a price to be paid. For Jesus, it was, the price was the cross, it was death. Why? To pay the price of redemption to redeem the world back to himself. But Satan is giving him another way. He's like, look, if you want all the kingdoms of the world, I'll give it to you. I, I, I'll give it to you and because it, it's mine to give and I can give it to whoever I want. I just want you to bow down and worship me. And Jesus rejects the temptation because this temptation is much more subtle. It's, it's how we're tempted, and here's the temptation. It's doing the right thing the wrong way. It's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, again, where Moses is telling the people that they're going to be going into a land where the land of promise, where they're going to inherit all kinds of things that they didn't work for. He's going to tell them that they're going to inherit 
homes and they're going to inherit lands and they're going to inherit vineyards, all of that that they did not work for. And when you read the Deuteronomy passage, you realize that Moses is telling the people that not obeying God is akin to following another God or bowing down to an idol. And Jesus is saying, redeeming the world is what I've been sent here to do, but I've got to do it my father's way. This is the challenge all of us face. And it's the temptation that doesn't go away because we're offered this temptation almost on a daily basis. And and it, it becomes something like this. Do the ends justify the means? The problem is, is that God's work doesn't just happen at the end. The end is the reward. The during is how God shapes you into becoming the person who can handle the blessing that comes at the end. And that's why just picking someone to marry because, well, it's not good for man to be alone, right? And the Bible says, and that that's the goal for me is to not be alone. But listen, that isn't exactly the goal because there is something worse to being single and alone and that's being married and alone because you decided to take a shortcut and that didn't lead to the same place. It's why couples give up on their marriage and they'll say like, well, I just wanted peace. I didn't want to fight anymore. I mean, God wants peace, right? Fruit of the spirit is peace. And that must be peace is a good thing, but peace is a good thing, but not at the expense of giving up. And maybe the fact that there's still some battles tell us that you're in the promised land because when they entered the promised land, they didn't just get peace and get the inheritance uh, without any fights. No, they had to fight for it. And maybe the reason that they had to fight for it was so that they knew that there was a cost related to it. And maybe that's why you've got to fight in your marriage because once you fight for your marriage and you have peace in your marriage, you realize how precious it is. And that's why Jesus is saying no to the temptation because if I do it my father's way, there's a better story. In the book of Revelation, this is the culmination when he decides that he's going to take the title deed. Here's what it says. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a lo- in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the scrolls and open the seal. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. My friends, there is a better story for us when we decide that God's plan done God's way will bring a harvest of blessing into our lives that is greater than anything we could imagine. Well, then look what happens in verse 12. He says, now when Jesus had heard that John, that is John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left their boat and their father 
and followed him. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you and then we're done. And that is I'm tempted when I neglect God's call. There's a message that we learn with these boys and, and we miss it because we are 2,000 years and half a world away. And the message that we see when we see these young men on the boat with their father, the message is this, they had failed. Now, let me back up and explain. In Israel, after you went through, there was basically two schools that you went to, one from uh, five to 10, which was called Beth Safer, and then another one uh, from 10 to 14, which is called Beth Talmud. And after you graduated from these schools, you would, uh, you would seek out a rabbi that was gonna be your rabbi, and you would make a decision to follow this rabbi. You would present yourself to the rabbi and say that you wanted to be his Talmud in Hebrew, which means his learner or his disciple. And the rabbi would ask you some questions, and they were usually very intricate questions about how well you knew the Bible. Uh, hey, I want you to tell me all the references to the Torah and the book of Zechariah, but I want them um, starting from the end of the book to the beginning. And, and because what the rabbi was looking for was who was the best of the best. And that was who he would take on as a disciple because the, the rabbi was looking to duplicate himself and spread what he was, was his interpretation of the law, which was called his yoke. Now, that's why when a rabbi named Jesus shows up and he tells the people that um, his burden is easy and his yoke is light, the people followed because his interpretation of the law wasn't laying heavy trips on people. In fact, we'll see that in Matthew 23. That's one of the things that he says about the Pharisees is that they lay heavy trips on people, but they themselves don't lift anything. Uh, but Jesus isn't laying a heavy trip on people. Jesus' teaching of the Torah was setting people free. Now, the disciples or a Talmud of a rabbi, they would follow rabbis wherever they went because they believed that the rabbi's way to live was the best possible way to live. They wanted to do everything exactly like their rabbi. So they ate what their rabbi ate. They went wherever their rabbi went. There's actually stories of disciples uh, following their rabbi into the restroom uh, because, and, and you can imagine what that's like. You go into a restroom, you close the uh, you close the door and like six of your disciples are there like, hey guys, how about we leave some room for the Holy Spirit? And, uh, and, 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 they, and here's why. Because the, the Talmud, they knew. The rabbis had prayers for everything. There were even restroom prayers that rabbis had that they thanked God that all the parts were working the way that they were supposed to. And so that's why, if you remember, Jesus, uh, Jesus' uh, Talmuds, his disciples, said, teach us to pray. No, they didn't know how to pray, but like, we want to know how to pray like how you pray. Because John the Baptist's disciples taught his disciples to pray, and so we want to pray like you. But here's the thing, is that after a while, not every student, not every Talmud would make the cut. And some would get sent home because the rabbi was only looking for the best of the best. And so the rabbi would take some of the students aside and he'd lay hands on them and pray for them. And he would say, now I bless you, my son, to go into the family trade. And he would send them home. And so at the age of 15, 16, 17, these young men would come home and they'd be invited into the family business with their dad um, because they were not the best of the best. Because the rabbi, every rabbi was looking to perpetuate his yoke. Every time he took on a disciple, he's asking himself this question, can this person be like me? And so if the rabbi believed, when all these people got sent home, when all, um, he would say to the potential student, he would say, follow me. And that's when he really um, 
narrowed down. These are the people that he was really going to invest in. That's why this story is so powerful because Jesus shows up and seeing these boys working in their father's business means that they had already failed. It means they had already been sent home. But Jesus shows up and he says the two words that every Jewish boy is looking to hear, follow me. Jesus is saying, I believe that you can be like me. Listen, there's only one other case in Jewish history where a rabbi picked his disciples. The rabbi's name was Hillel. Um, every, in every other instance, the student always picked the rabbi. That's why in John chapter 15, Jesus says, you did not choose me. That's the way it works with disciples, right? Is that the disciples usually choose the rabbi, but now he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to, to, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. When I was a young Christian, and I remember reading the first book of the Bible I ever read when I became a Christian was the Gospel of Matthew. And I remember reading this chapter and, and thinking, like, these verses didn't make any sense to me because I didn't know the background. And I remember thinking, like, how irresponsible was this? Like, I, I just imagine that there was this verse in the Bible that, that, that something that got cut, that it was Mr. Zebedee yelling at his kids to say, you know, you pesky kids, get back to work. And uh, stop messing around because it says that Jesus said, follow me. And they just dropped everything and they just, they, they just started following him. And I thought that this was, there would be some kind of interaction here. But listen, it was so far from the truth that he went home that night and Mrs. Zebedee is asking, hey, where are the boys? And he would smile and say, yeah, the boys, they're not coming home. And she'd say, well, why is that? He said, because the rabbi from Galilee named Jesus came to see them today. And he said, follow me. Honey, the rabbi thinks our boys have what it takes. Listen, we talk a lot about believing in God, trusting in God, but here's the thing that I think is so powerful for us as we close, and that is this, um, that God believes something about you. We believe in him, we trust in him, but God believes something about you. He believes that with his help and in his power, you can be the person that he created you to be. And listen, if, if you're here and you say, man, I haven't been, uh, I haven't been the best spouse and I've, it's, it's been a mess. And do you know this? Listen, but you can be because God believes. He's saying, follow me, that he believes that you can be like him. If your marriage is falling apart and you say, man, I just, I don't uh, believe it can work. Listen. Jesus is saying, follow me, because he believes that you can be like him. If there's an addiction that you haven't been able to let go of, a habit that's just been beating you up for years, and, and you haven't been set free, and you're starting to think, I, I just don't know that, that I'm ever going to be free, here's the thing that Jesus is saying, follow me, because he believes that you can be like him. And that begins with answering the call to follow him. And listen, sometimes we, we think it's just following him, like, oh yeah, I became a Christian. And that's good. That's a start. But it also means following him in all of our ways. Because some of us are followers of Jesus, but we're not really following Jesus. So I'm going to invite all of us to stand as we close. Because I really believe that Jesus' desire for your life, for mine, is for us to follow him because he believes that our life can be different and that we can be who we are created to be in his power. And this is true if you grew up in church and walked away. 
This is true if you've never darkened the door of a church until this afternoon and, and you're here hoping that maybe God can, can help somehow in your situation. This is true if you're somewhere in between and you're like, hey, I've been going to church, but there's just this temptation. There's this thing that's just been wiping me out and I'm just trying to figure, am I ever going to be free? And here's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. He's here and he's waiting for you. That today can be your opportunity to take the first step in following him. Because we believe in him, but what if God believes that we can become who we're created to be? That we can have victory over the thing that's been defeating us? That we can have peace where there's conflict? And the thing that we think there's just no way that God's ever going to fulfill that promise that we can see it happen. But it begins by answering the call. It begins by dropping the nets that we've had on, all these things that we've been holding on to by dropping it and following him. And listen, maybe as we close, this is our moment. This is our moment to say, yeah, I'm going to really start following him because I want to experience the peace that he's promised. I want to let go of the guilt that I've been carrying around. And I want to see him do the things in my life that I would never be able to come up with or figure out or have the resources to make happen myself. Listen, that all begins in a moment of surrender, in a moment where we decide that we're going to follow him with all of our being. And so listen, in a minute, the band is going to sing. And here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to follow him. I want to invite you to just take a step forward and meet me here at the base of this stage. And we're going to call out to God together. And we're going to watch God do something amazing in your life. And this is going to be the day you can circle it on the calendar. This is the day everything began to change. Because it's the day that I said, God, I believe in you. And I'm following you because you have some things that you believe about me as well. And so if you're ready for things to change as you start following Jesus, then I want you to meet me here. Take a step now as the band begins to sing. Johan, lead us. decision great decision and listen it could be it could be I'm gonna pray for these that have come forward but if you're saying I need to be up there I need to be up there I need God to do this work in my life and I don't know what's what's keeping me I can assure you it's not God that's keeping you that maybe this is your moment to come and watch God do something amazing in your life yeah, come on up. We're going to wait for you. God bless you. Yeah.
But if you feel like you need to be up here, listen, this is your moment right now. The band's not going to sing again. This is your moment to say, I'm going to follow him. Because listen, if nothing changes, nothing changes. But if something changes, then everything begins to change. And that God wants to meet us in this place right now. Church, let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you hear us when we call out to you. And I thank you for every precious life that's come forward that wants you to transform them as they follow you. God, you want to do a great work in and through them. And I pray that this would be the beginning. Those of you that have come forward, I want to repeat you, uh, have you repeat a prayer with me. It's not a magic formula. And they might be my words, but I pray that they express your heart to God in this moment. In fact, we're all going to pray it out loud together. Just say, dear God, I come to you now. And I'm sorry for all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. Starting right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.